Morning, church. Good to see you guys. Great to be together uh, like this. Hey, you know, the, the, the thing about Christmas is, is this. Um, some people, some people love it. Some people love, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) Some people love Christmas. Some people just love everything about it. And, and some people really don't. And it isn't that those who dislike Christmas are necessarily, we want to tag them right away with it. Oh, they're Ebenezer Scrooge or they're the Grinch or whatever. We want to tag them with that right away. But it isn't that they're necessarily like that. There are, would we agree that there are legitimate reasons to maybe not like Christmas? Do you think there's some legitimate reasons uh, for that? And um, some people just simply find Christmas hard to take. And um, since there's no biblical mandate to celebrate Christmas, everybody with me? There's no biblical mandate to celebrate Christmas. I think the pastor's a heretic. No, he's not a heretic. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says you have to celebrate Christmas at all. There's no prescription on the observance of Christmas. Are we all okay? Anybody making for the door? This is simply what we celebrate, the way we celebrate it. It's simply a cultural thing. It's a nice thing to do, but it's, it's filled with all the cultural trappings, in fact. That's not a bad thing. That's why I don't even get anxious about all the extra stuff we put on Christmas, because it actually doesn't even matter, because we're not mandated to celebrate it. Okay, end of that rant. But because of that, because it's not biblically mandated, we shouldn't ever get anxious about someone who wants to skip Christmas. Or someone who wants to just play it cool at Christmas or downplay Christmas. Because it's not mandated. And no one's going to pin that on anyone else. No one's going to think any less of someone who doesn't play up Christmas the way we do. And and, and while we're like admitting things and agreeing to things together here, which we are. Okay. let's, Let's admit these things. There's as much sorrow at Christmas as there is joy. Yeah? There's as much contention at Christmas as there is peace. There's there's as much despair at Christmas as there is hope. There's as much selfishness at Christmas as there is generosity. And there's as much indifference at Christmas as there is love. And in fact, as you look at those 10 things, you're going to say, those 10 things could describe Christmas dinner at my house. So all the more reason when you look at that, and if we all admit, and I'm hearing in the room that you're all admitting this, if we're admitting that all 10 of these things could describe Christmas, then all the more reason for us to narrow our focus, get past all the trappings, the cultural traditions of Christmas, to see exactly what we're celebrating. Let's, Let's really get to that. And it really is just one thing. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus. That's the whole thing. It's it's an incarnation simply means God made flesh. So it's not just about the birth. The birth is kind of like the exciting part. 
It, it's, it's the cutesy part of the whole thing. And when a baby is born, there's no doubt, that's an awesome thing. We celebrate that around here. Y'all are so, you know, reproductive around here and, 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 and producing babies. Is that the right word? I don't know. And if you go down to the Harvest Kids wing right outside the, the nursery, they got this like um, uh, sign on the door and it celebrates all the new babies who are born here. The, the name of the baby and the weight of the baby, because that's important, becomes less important the older you get. Well, at least you don't want it on a sign at church, right? And, and, and when the baby was born and all of that's super exciting, but we want to celebrate births and all of that. But listen, the thing about all the births here around, Har- you know, at Harvest here, the thing about all those births is every single one of those babies is just like an ordinary, run-of-the-mill human being. That's it. Oh, I know, parents, you think your child's exceptional. I get it. I get it. Your child's very special to you, but it's just an ordinary human, okay? All of the babies are ordinary humans. But listen, when this baby was born, when Jesus Christ was born, he wasn't just an ordinary human being. Because this was the incarnation of God. This is God made flesh and dwelling amongst us. Now, why is all of that so important? It sounds just like some theological thing that's out there. But it's so important because I believe our world needs to be reminded. And every person in this room needs to be reminded about the incarnation. We need the incarnation of Christ more today than at any other time in history. This room is filled with people who need to be reminded that God was made flesh. Because we need to know that our God gets it. We're in so tough in the world today that we need to know that our God gets it. I need to know that my God understands sorrow, that my God understands contention, that he knows the despair that we're in, that he knows the selfishness of the human heart, that he knows how much indifference we face in a week. I need my God to know all of that. And God knows all of that because he's not a distant God. He's a God who has made flesh. He came and dwelt with us. And he overcame all of it. And he shows us the way that we can overcome it. So here's what we need to know going into Christmas. You ready for it? Just a single statement that we're going to look at here today. God is active and alive in our world. So much so that he became like us, simply because he loves us and wants us to know him. And we're going to unpack that phrase by phrase in just a few moments, but let's bow our heads in prayer and commit this time to the Lord as we get ready to look into his word. Father, we're um, inviting you, not that you need an invitation, but we're inviting you to come to this place and in this room and, and come to our hearts and And teach us and show us. Father, we have a sense that this incarnation is is an awesome thing in every way. But I I pray, God, that we would capture or recapture a sense of that again today. And and just see how that makes such a difference in our lives. So do that work of, of transforming that you always do to change us and make us different than the people that were that came into this room a few minutes ago. So, Father, help us to understand what we're hearing and then to believe what we're hearing and then to commit ourselves to doing what we're hearing. And, God, this we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
You up for that? All right, here it is again. Here's the statement. God is alive and active in our world, so much so uh, that he became like us simply because he loves us and wants us uh, to know him. Phrase by phrase, starting with this, God is alive and active in our world. Now, I know lots of people who deny that God is alive and active in our world today. And often, here's the reasons why uh, people, a couple of reasons why uh, people deny that is first, because they have so much internal hurt and, and they've kind of checked out on God and, and believe that all of the hurt in the life is, is there because God hasn't um, decided to erase it from their lives. They can't see through their own pain and the trials they're going through to see a God who's active and, and might throw their hands up in anguish. and say, God, where are you? I don't believe that you're alive. I don't believe that you're active because look at my life right now. And some people... Some people don't believe that God is alive and active today because um, they look at the world, they're reading the news, they're watching their news feed, they're, they're just seeing what's going on around the world and all the tragedies that happen around the world and they're like, I, how could God be alive? How could God be active if that kind of thing, if those wars, if those famines, if that tragedy, if that natural disaster is happening, how could God be alive and active in the world? Oh, but he is working out his plan in his way, in his time, in our lives individually and in this world. In fact, a verse that's been so special to our church family over the past year or so is Psalm 66, verse 5. We uh, like this verse so much, we carved it into a stone and put it at the south entrance. Come and see, the psalmist says, come and see what God has done. Come and see what God has done because he is alive, because he is active in the world. He's awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. You know, and we've seen what God has done. We're, we're seeing what God has done in the midst of this church. God at work in our church family. God at work in the lives of individuals, in, in families and in marriages. Lives being changed. There's so many different examples I could use of that. I love what God is doing through our worship ministry. I love what God is doing through our teaching ministry. I love what God is doing through our biblical soul care ministry, what God is doing in young adults and what God is doing in youth and in our children's ministry. In fact, I just want to think about just one thing because there's so many stories we could tell, but one just little, little teeny story from Wednesday night. And uh, Jeannie sent this text around on uh, Thursday morning to the staff uh, to kind of let us know this little thing that happened. Awana meets on Wednesday night, and one of the things about our Awana ministry was that we had gotten to the place where we couldn't have f- uh, the kids who were in Awana, we couldn't have them bring their friends anymore because we, we literally just had no room. Awana was busting at the seams. We couldn't take any new kids in. And one of the things about our Awana children's program is we want them to bring their friends from school and from their neighborhoods who, who don't know the Lord. We want to introduce these kids to Jesus. But our Awana program was so good that it had swelled up and largely had swelled up with families from other churches. And so we, we fired them. We, we did. That sounds harsh. I know we didn't fire the families that had been with us a long time. And we didn't fire any of the families from smaller churches in town that can't run Awana. But we fired the kids from the big churches that we thought could run Awana. And um, we just said, sorry, you can't come anymore. And uh, thankfully, Emmanuel Baptist went and started their own Awana program. And they have as many kids or more than we do now. And, that, and that, they just started out. So there's a huge need for this. Anyways, so now we created room. So now our kids are inviting kids that don't know Jesus to come. 
So Wednesday night, this is what I'm getting to, and this is where God's alive and active and he's working in people's lives. So this little five-year-old girl comes and Jeannie sends this text while working through the entrance booklet with our, uh, with our five-year-old unchurched Awana visitor last Wednesday night. I asked the child, have you ever heard of Jesus? Have you ever heard of Jesus? This little five-year-old girl said, she thinks for a minute, and she finally says, well, there was this one time when my mom made a mistake, and she said, Jesus. <laughs> and Jeannie put a wide-eyed emoji with that, and I, I think that was because I'm out of context, but, but at least she had heard the name Jesus, but now at Awana, listen, here's the small, little, just a teeny-weeny little story of how God's alive and active in this little girl hearing the name of Jesus in the right context and in the right way for the very first time. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's just, that's just God working in a very small way, but God is working. He's alive. He's active. He's working in this church, and he's working in the bigger things in history. We can see God orchestrating his plan. We just spent uh, 12 weeks working through the book of Daniel and looking how God was working through history to bring about everything that he wanted to happen. And some of it was very hard and very tragic, but God was behind it all. Ordering all of these events to bring about his will. God is alive and he's active in our world and What we celebrate at Christmas, I mean, there's no doubt, this is one of the coolest things that we get to celebrate. It's it's the one thing that we celebrate that seems to be least offensive to the outside world, to those who are unbelieving. People who aren't even fired up about God or, or church still find the nativity story compelling and interesting because it has magi and it has a star and it has shepherds and it has angels who show up and it's about a baby. And so they like it. They're enamored by the story. But that seems to be as far as it goes. And the rest of the time, most people are just like, I, I, don't, I just don't think God's very active. I don't think that God's really alive. It's a nice little story. And sometimes we think that today is so much different than it was in the first century when the nativity story actually rolled out. When in actual fact, it was exactly the same. People at that time in history had also thought that God had abandoned them. Even the people who were the people of God thought God had abandoned them. They weren't looking for him anymore. They lived under a totalitarian government that was hostile toward their faith and made the practice of their faith very difficult. They had been waiting after being accustomed to having prophet after prophet come to them. It had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet to speak to them a word of God. So they could be excused in the first century at the time of Jesus. They could be excused for thinking that God was no longer alive and God was no longer active. And God had forgotten them. And then the incarnation. God broke into their world. God broke into our world. And God declared through the the cries of a newborn human baby, God declared, I'm alive. And I'm active. And I'm with you. The prophet Isaiah, his words were fulfilled. He said, Isaiah 7, 14, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Amen? God with us. So God is alive. God is active in our world. And then see this next. So much so that he became like us. Now this is the incarnation. In fact, J.I. Packer, eminent scholar, a Bible teacher said this, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. It's so incredible to believe this and to think about what God did for us. The Apostle Paul's Creed speaks of the incarnation. Not the Apostle's Creed, but the Apostle Paul's Creed in 1 Timothy 3.16. He said, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes through like six elements of godliness and of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I mean, that's a timeline of Jesus' earthly life from the incarnation to the ascension. It's a creed that God's people would say in the early church. Being manifested in the flesh, this is the incarnation of our God, literally the Son of God being, and this is my favorite way to think about the incarnation, the Son of God being clothed clothed in humanity one commentator said that he was assuming flesh he was taking on a human body but not just the human body but taking on human the nature human nature the nature of humanity the apostle john wrote this is in john's gospel chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh the word there capitalizes referring to jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's so much to love in John 1.14. And right at the start of it is the incarnation. God made flesh. The pre-existent God who created everything became human, became flesh. And what he sacrificed... We started to think about sacrifice. Tell me about the sacrifice of Jesus. Listen, at the, when you get asked that question, you start talking about that, everybody's going to go immediately to the cross. We think about the sacrifice. We go to the cross and we think about him dying on the cross. But listen, the sacrifice started right here. Right at the manger. Right at the birth when he took on human flesh. It all becomes so much clearer as you see of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's telling us as believers, think about this. And then make this what you think about. And let that saturate and change your life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he had the substance of God, who he is was God and is God. He is divine. He is the son of God. He is God. Though that was true, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's what happened. Here's the sacrifice of the incarnation. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man, the incarnation. 
and being found in human form, now human substance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Incarnation, birth, atonement, sacrifice on the cross, death on the cross, and then the resurrection to new life. That's the whole package. So it's not just about the incarnation. It's not even just, though it's central, the cross. It's not even just about the cross. It's about the incarnation. He became us and he gave his life and he was resurrected uh, from the dead to new life. It's all three of those. Philippians 2 says he set aside the independent divine prerogatives and power in favor of identifying with humanity. That was sacrificial. And the implications of even saying that are incredible for us. This is where the incarnation of Christ begins to intersect with us. I love Hebrews 4 of 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now pause there for a second. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, the author here is speaking into the Jewish situation and the temple and the sacrificial system. And what would happen there is the priest would receive the, the, the animal or whatever the offering was and take that to the altar and that would be offered before the Lord. The high priest would perform his functions over the temple. But listen, he didn't know the people. I mean, he knew people in general, but he didn't know the people. You know, person A was coming from some village in Galilee and down to Jerusalem. They'd buy a lamb and they'd go up and they'd hand it over to a priest. And the high priest never even met them. Didn't know anything about them, but would then offer their animal before the Lord. So it's kind of like an impersonal. That guy doesn't really even know me. Now, so we have... Um, no priests on staff except insofar as every single believer in Jesus Christ is a priest themselves. That's what the scriptures teach. So y'all, if you, if you know Jesus, you're a priest and you have full access to God without the need of a priest. I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor. But here's, here's the parallel to that. Like, I'm the lead pastor of this church. I, I, I don't know very many of you at all. I'm not personally connected with you. It's uh, so difficult to do that with the size of our church. Even all of our pastors and all of our uh, elders together uh, seek to care for and love on you. But, but we can't know your situation. Every single person in this room, everyone, has carried some kind of baggage or heartache or hurt or some kind of challenge you're facing right now. Every single one of you carried something in here. I can't know that. I can't know what every burden is and what everybody's carrying in life right now. But listen, we have someone who knows. See, we don't have a high priest. We don't have a pastor who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, tried, tested, as we are yet without sin. Who's it speaking about? It's about Jesus. He gets it. Because he was incarnate. So there's no God like him. Of all the small g gods in the world, there's no God who took on human flesh and dwelt among people and did what Jesus did and felt what Jesus felt and experienced what Jesus experienced. I mean, I wrote this down. He gets us. He gets us. Jesus gets humanity. Humanity. 
He understands. So why is that so important and how does that impact my life? Well, Hebrews 4.15 said what it said, but the next verse says this, let us then, in light of the fact that we have this high priest, Jesus, who actually gets us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Bring your prayers, bring your losses, bring your hurts, bring your heartaches, bring your burdens, bring it all. Because he gets it. He gets it. I said with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All of that happens because he became like us. Which then I believe begs the question, why would Jesus do this? Why would, why would God send his son to take on human flesh and offer this to us? I think John 3.16 is fairly familiar to us, yes? Fairly familiar. The first part of it. We're going to see here that, that he did this simply because he loves us. He loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God's intention was and continues to be to communicate his love for us and to draw us back into a relationship with him. A relationship that was severed by sin, the consequence of which is death. But God loved us so much, he he made a plan to redeem us from that. Simply because he loves us. So I always like to do a little extra reading around Christmas on Christmas itself and all of that. And um, new edition of National Geographic. Actually, this is a reprint of one they put out a couple of years ago. I guess they figured they could make more money by republishing it. But it's a special edition National Geographic on, you can see that there, Jesus and the origins of Christianity. So I was super interested in this and, and, and began to read this. It's actually... Um, there's some really good stuff in this uh, related to um, research and, and history. And you all know how I feel about history, right? So there's great history stuff in there. There's a lot that's really uh, worth reading. Uh, what's telling, though, about it as it begins to explore the origins of, of Christianity, what's, what's obvious is that the, the premise, the starting point for what they're research is saying and what their writing is saying and what their conclusions are is a very rationalistic point of view. They're not coming from a faith standpoint. They're researching and writing and concluding on the basis of, of rationalism. Does this make sense? And what are the evidences that we can find? And, um, and so, so what happens with that is that they only see Jesus as a, and this is the way they put it, as a, as a uh, Jewish reformer from Galilee. That's what he is. He's a Jewish reformer from Galilee. And that he just hit upon the right time in history to start doing what he was doing. And the right set of circumstances were coming together politically. And then he just happened to have this guy called Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, who just kind of took it the rest of the way and, and made it a thing. 
Okay, it's just all rationalism. In fact, they wrote this. Uh, we will try this on page five. We will try to understand why the ideas of a Jewish reformer from Galilee would resonate so strongly with the aspirations of the Greco-Roman world, ultimately creating a new civilization, a Western civilization in the process. Modern research has shown that the astonishing growth of Christianity was to some extent due to a highly unusual convergence of events. Super inspiring. And again, I would, I hear that and I go, I agree with that, but I see God as the one orchestrating this convergence of events. And beyond that, I see a great rationale for why Christianity has spread around the world. And it doesn't have to do with any rational arguments. In fact, What I find in reading this magazine is that all the power and divine intentionality is sucked out of the story. And God's intention was to communicate his love for us. What's what's sucked out of this is the love of God for people who were alienated from him and needed to find their way back. What's sucked out is, is the reason God did this. So I was, with all of this in my mind, I'm, I'm deep in my thoughts, I'm, I'm studying, I'm, I'm preparing this message. And, and then I, I came across this very helpful tidbit of research. What the world needs now, you know it? Is love, sweet love. The, the only thing, thing that there's just too little love. What the world? You can tell that I'm, I'm researching in all the best places for these messages, right? <laughs> so all week long, I'm thinking about this song because I started thinking about it early in the week, and I'm humming it and singing it all over the office all week. Not baby, it's cold outside. I mean, it's this one, right? <laughs> it, it was going to be one of those two songs this week, but it was. It was this song by Jackie DeShannon from 1965, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love, and I agree with that. I'm sure I'm wrong. The world around us is peddling, speaking of, and peddling the wrong kind of love, not something that the world actually needs. The world around us is peddling a a love of sentimentality. A love of infatuation. A love of mutuality or reciprocity. In other words, I, I love you, but I'm expecting something back. And if I don't get that something back, my love isn't going to continue. That's not actually love. The world is peddling a, a love that has actually lust. I mean, that's, that's the thing the world is talking about when it comes to love. And what we know about God's love is that God's love is sacrificial. God's love is unconditional. And God's love is eternal. Amen. God's love, in fact, brings all of the things that we talked about off the top. God's love brings us joy. God's love brings us real and lasting peace. God's love chases away despair and puts hope in its place. God's love is generous. And God's love produces more love. 
as God loves us and we love him and we love each other and that gets pushed out from the band of believers to a world that needs to hear it. Because everything they have is counterfeit. And heading down a dead end road. God's standing ready to shower you with his love and let you know that you are his child because that's his purpose. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went all the way. All the way to the cross. Defeated sin and death for us to demonstrate how much he loves us. He sacrificed his son on the cross. Christmas, the incarnation, is just one short chapter in in the entire narrative and story of what God has done. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and that day yet to come at the return of Christ are the other chapters in this grand epic that God is narrating to us. So believe this. Believe that God is alive and active in our world, so much so that he became like us, simply because he loves us and wants us to know him. John 3.16 continues. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The perishing thing is important to lock down what we're talking about here because every person in this room, barring the return of Christ prior and us being ushered into the heavens, every single person in this room is going to die. I don't think that's news to anyone. We're all going to die. We're all going to perish at some point. But what we're talking about here is not just that first death, but we're talking about the second death. The death that came in as a result of sin entering this world. That second death, the perishing away from Christ, is eternal separation from God in unspeakable horror. That's the perishing we're talking about. Insofar as uh, we have a first birth, a physical birth as human beings, there is the opportunity to be reborn or saved and have our sins forgiven and live with Christ in the same way there is physical death and there is second death. And we want to avoid this at all costs. The cost of our own life to give our lives to Christ. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All of this is a love gift toward us and there's nothing that we can do to earn it except what the text says here, which is believe in him. Believe in him. The sum total of the requirement to receive the gift that God is offering is that we would believe in him. And when we do, this is what comes our way. Forgiveness of sin, welcomed into his family as his sons and daughters. He gives us hope. He defines the purpose of our lives and he sets our eternal destiny. That's awesome. I don't know what kind of gifts you're expecting this Christmas. I I, I think that all of us would be in a place where we would want to have at least one gift that we're unwrapping that would wow us. 
Some people spoil this because they like to know what their gifts are up front. How many people would just confess right now, you're the kind of person that wants to know your gifts up front and actually go hunting for them around the house? Who, who would admit that? This is my son, Luke. It's also my wife. But you didn't hear it from me. That's fun to go and search it out and try to figure it and all that. But I love those Christmas mornings when you open up a gift and you had no idea and it's just one of those gifts. It's just awesome and it's special and it's thoughtful and you never saw it coming and it just changes everything about what was just happening. You want to be wowed with a gift. Well, believe in Jesus. If you haven't done that, believe in Jesus and unwrap that gift. And let me tell you, he'll wow you. He'll wow you with forgiveness. He wows you with identity. He wows you with hope. He wows you with purpose. You get to unwrap eternity. And know that there will be no perishing. But only life. God wants you to have that gift this Christmas. And when you believe, when you come to know him, you come to know him. That's what we're talking about. He wants us to know him. He doesn't want us to know about him. Lots and lots of people know about him. The good folks at National Geographic know a lot about God. And if you read this, you realize they might know more about God and more about Jesus and the details of his life than you do. But I bet you they don't know him. There's a difference between knowing about God and actually knowing him. 600 years before Jesus came, the Isaiah, prof, the Isaiah the prophet said this under the inspiration of the Spirit, Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We don't have time to unpack all of that. I'm just going to tell you, every one of those descriptors, those four descriptors, relates to our knowledge of him and his relationship to us. That's what God's wrapping up and putting under the tree. It's who he is, and it's what we need. What God gives us is himself and the beauty of these descriptions. What God gives us is the ability to... I love this because it's incarnational language. What God gives us is the ability to clothe ourselves with Christ. In the same way that Christ clothed himself with humanity. He gives us the opportunity to be what God always intended for us to be. Athanasius said it this way. He became what we are that he might make us what he is. He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. Free of sin, knowing who we are, in a perfect love relationship with our God, and eternity bound. You have only to know him to get that. God is alive and active in our world, so much so that he became like us, simply because he loves us and wants us to know him. What God has done, amen? What God has done. Let's pray together.
Father, again, we are um, amazed at you and grateful for the way that you care for us and love us. Father, you loved us enough even to give us your word and speak to us in a way that we can read and understand and have it transform us. So God, I pray that you would do that work and and those among us who are believers already but who needed a reminder of the incarnation and what you've done for us, God, I pray that we would all walk away confident in that, assured, built up, strengthened. And Father, for those in the room who as yet do not know you as Savior, how incredible would it be if the Savior were received at Christmas, today, in this room, that that gift would be taken and unwrapped and would be the wow that we know it to be. And all the benefits that you offer us as a result would flood into that life, flood into all of our lives, that this would be the most joyful Christmas ever. Because you're actually the only one who could make that happen. Everything else is just fleeting and of this world. So encourage those who believe, Father, and save those who have not yet believed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.